Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Uh, and this is a two-parter. This is the first of a two-parter, and this has been in the works for a long time. It has been. Uh, since our trip to France in June, so like six months uh, and it has taken a while for a few reasons. Um, when we had Sarah Roberts from the Atlanta History Center on to talk about the center's historic gardens, as we were talking after we had recorded, I mentioned to her that I was working on an episode about French gardener André Le Nôtre, and that I thought it was going to have to be two episodes because there was so much. And she responded, how are you going to get it all into just two episodes? Admittedly, she comes at this from the perspective of someone who is steeped in horticulture. And so to her, it could have been a whole podcast series. But even if you are not from that background, it's a lot because Le Notre was a very busy man. Uh, he worked on many, many very high-profile landscapes and gardens in France and throughout Europe, including most famously the grounds of Versailles. And his work really defined the French formal garden in the 17th century, and a lot of that work is still being enjoyed today more than 300 years after his death. He also was very long-lived, so that is part of why he was so influential and there is so much to talk about. You will find statues and memorials to him in a number of different locations in Paris and the surrounding areas because his work was really instrumental in developing the cultural identity of France as an epicenter of design and style. If you walk around Tuileries, there is a bust of him there. If you are driving through the town of Versailles, going up to the palace, you'll see a statue of him. I saw another smaller one just in a little neighborhood while we were walking around at the end of our trip when everybody had left but Brian and myself. And so, like, he clearly is very, very important. Um, so today, in part one, we are going to cover his life up to and including a project that was controversial, not for Le Nussle's part in it, but because of its implications for the property's owner. There was scandal, but it did not impact Le Nutra negatively. And then on part two, we're going to talk a lot about Versailles and then the last years of Le Nussle's life. Before we get started, though, we're going to do a little level set on the use of the word gardener versus another term like landscape architect or something else that might seem a little more descriptive of what he was actually doing. The term landscape architect didn't exist at all during Le Nôtre's time. It wasn't coined until the mid-19th century. So even though we'll default to some degree to using the term gardener or master gardener because that's often named as his profession historically, his work really went way, way beyond that as his role under Louis XIV evolved and expanded. Not only did he turn his intellect into learning geometry and mathematics to ensure that his landscape designs were sound, but he also ended up needing to learn a lot about engineering for his more large-scale works, and he had to develop management and leadership skills. Also in the mix of all of this was a love for an understanding of art, and that informed all of his other work. So even though we're going to call him a gardener, there's no disrespect intended with that, and he was much more than what we might describe as a gardener today. Yeah, I think if someone working professionally today did the types of things he did and you called them a gardener, they would be super insulted. <laughs> that is not the intent. Um, 
it is this impressive combination of his, of skills and disciplines, as well as a very calm and humorous temperament that enabled him to collaborate with a variety of strong-minded people. And that has given André Le Nôtre an important place in French history and has made his work something that continues to influence landscape architecture around the world today, centuries after he was born. He was really born into his life's work and consequently into his legacy. His father, Jean Lenotre, was a royal gardener. He worked for King Louis XIII, and his expertise was employed at the gardens at Tuileries. He held the title of Jardinier Ordinaire, which was sort of like a government contractor position under senior gardener Claude Mollet. André's grandfather, Pierre Lenotre, had been one of the gardeners employed by Catherine de' Medici when the Tuileries Gardens were first established. And this was also a time, culturally in France, when family ties were routinely part of employment security. All of the gardeners serving the crown in 17th century France were from only a handful of families— and this continued with the Lenotres. Two of André's three sisters, Françoise and Elisabeth, also married gardeners, and they also helped tend some of the royal gardens. His third sister, Marie, was the only one who married outside of the gardening occupation. André was born on March 12, 1613, in Paris. His family lived adjacent to Le Jardin des Tuileries as part of his father's employment arrangement. So it's from the really very beginning of his life, his environment was dominated by just a very carefully managed and beautiful park setting. At this point, these gardens weren't public, so he was lucky enough because of his father's position to have access to the menagerie and the gardens, all these things that had been created at Catherine de' Medici's order for royalty to enjoy. As a child, André Lenotre is said to have watched his father draft designs for hours, just mesmerized. So it seemed that gardening was truly not just in his blood, but was just a source of fascination for him. But despite that, initially, it didn't seem like gardening or landscaping or any kind of work in that vein were going to be André's career calling. Because as much as he loved watching his father work, he was way more interested initially in becoming a painter. From the time he was 16 until his mid-20s, Lenotre studied with painter Simone Vouet. Vouet, who painted in the Italian Baroque style, was a prominent artist. He served as Louis XIII's primary painter and portraitist. Bouet was situated in a studio at the Grand Gallery that was built to connect the Louvre to the Tuileries Palace, so he was very close to the Notre's residence. And at this point, all the elements that are today part of the Louvre Museum complex were still royal residences and art academy spaces. And he also studied under architect François Mansart. And Mansart's influence on French culture, and specifically Versailles, is pretty significant. His nephew by marriage, Jules Hardouin Mansart, would become the main architect of the chapel at Les Invalides and the Grand Trianon at Versailles, as well as a lot of renovation that happened at Versailles much later. Studying under Vouet in particular opened a lot of doors for Lenotre. Because the painter was so connected to King Louis XIII, he knew everybody. So spending time in Vouet's atelier meant that André Lenotre was meeting all the powerful people who came to visit, and he in turn visited those people with Vouet. He was also part of a group of young men who were studying with the painter who would rise up to prominence in their own right as they got older, including Charles Lebrun, who uh, Lenotre would collaborate with later on in his life. That, of course, was the great uncle of Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun's husband. 
And despite spending several years studying to be a painter, Le Nôtre eventually decided that he would follow in his father's career footsteps after all. And so he started working with his father at Tuileries. And this definitely was not a situation where those years of study of art had been wasted due to this shift in direction, though, because Le Nôtre, throughout the rest of his career, applied the artistic principles that he had learned to his work designing gardens. In 1635, when he was 22, his career as a gardener officially began. Through the connections that he forged through Simone Vouet and through his father's good reputation, he was brought on as head gardener for Louis XIII's brother, Gaston, the Duc d'Orléans. The Luxembourg Gardens, ground of the Luxembourg Palace where the Duke lived, served as Le Nôtre's first professional responsibility. These grounds had already been laid out and established, though, so there wasn't a whole lot of change or innovation on his to-do list. It was more about maintenance and upkeep. When André's father, Jean Le Nôtre, retired from the Tuileries in 1637, his son was named as his replacement. Uh, I ran into some sources that incorrectly reported this event as taking place because Jean Le Nôtre died. That is not the case. The senior gardener Le Nôtre lived another 18 years after he quit working and went to a life of retirement. Uh, as was the case with the Luxembourg Gardens, Tuileries at this point was designed and in pretty good shape. This did not end André Le Nôtre's work, by the way, at Luxembourg Palace. He managed the grounds of both the Duc d'Orléans and the grounds at Tuileries, as well as other side projects for wealthy clients. Le Nôtre married Françoise Langlois in 1640. Her father was an artillery officer, and her family was considered low-level nobility. This marriage match seemed to be a good one. The two of them had three children over the course of their marriage. They were Jean-Francois, Marianne, and Jeanne-Françoise. All of them died very young, though. Their firstborn, Jean-Francoise, had been born just shy of three years into the marriage, and the two daughters were born much later. On May 24, 1643, King Louis XIII died, and his son Louis XIV, who was just four years old at the time, became the King of France. Of course, there was a regent involved when he was still a child. Le Nôtre's work continued after this transition in monarchs, just as it had before Louis XIII's death. We'll come back to the next step in his career, but first we will have a quick sponsor break. In 1657, Le Nôtre was granted the title of General Controller of Buildings, Gardens, Arts, and Factories. And this was an appointed position for the crown, but Le Nôtre was still, to some degree, kind of a cog in the much bigger machine of maintaining optimally beautiful surroundings for the king, the king's family, and his guests. Le Nôtre, at this point, was sort of like a company man being promoted through the ranks, but he actually had to pay for the privilege of being promoted into this role, which was customary for the time. This was not a post that Le Nôtre held exclusively. The controller roles were usually shared among three men, with each man serving for a year at a time on this three-year rotation. Le Nôtre paid 40,000 livres for the job, while the annual salary for it was only 3,000. But this also meant that he was given the title of advisor to the king, and that was sort of like social security. The job gave him enough clout that the side projects he took on more than made up for the money that he had paid for this title. 
And the job duties of Le Nôtre's controller post were varied, and they covered a lot of different things, as indicated by that wording of buildings, gardens, arts, and factories. That seems like a very wide swath of potential things. Uh, He had to supervise all kinds of projects that were going on in any of the royal buildings. And he also had to review financial records of contractors before payment for work could be issued by the Treasury, essentially like approving invoices would happen today. And he was also himself a contractor, working as the king's designer and submitting his own paperwork for payment. That would be very frowned upon today in most places, but at this point, it was not at all unusual. When he rose to the controller position, Lenotra was already a year into a significant undertaking. In 1656, he had started work on a project for finance minister Nicolas Fouquet. He designed the landscaping at the Chateau de Vaudevicon near Melun, France. That was about 30 miles outside of Paris. And that's a famous example of French Baroque architecture. Over the course of five years, as the chateau on site was being built, Notre worked to create a design that took advantage of this natural rise and fall of the ground. He also used water features to make an already very large landscape look almost infinite from ground level. Fouquet entertained King Louis XIV at Vaux-le-Vicomte by staging a historically famous party. And the king was wildly impressed with what Le Nôtre had accomplished there. Le Nôtre had worked alongside the famed architect Louis Leveau and the artist Charles Lebrun, who painted the lavish chateau's interiors and designed all of the sculpture. And Lebrun, in particular, had a reputation for being headstrong, but because he and the very good-natured Le Nôtre were old friends from their days under the tutelage of Simon Vouet, the master gardener was able to negotiate most conflicts among the three creators and keep things pretty even keel. The party thrown to show off this new estate was just mind-blowing. It featured an eight-course meal served to a 1,000 guests on gold plates. That was just the beginning. Moliere staged a play in the gardens. Jean-Baptiste Lully, sometimes called the grandfather of ballet, staged a ballet for the guests. Partygoers could roam these beautifully laid-out parterre or sit by Le Nôtre's water features as they watched the spectacular end-of-the-evening fireworks display. Allegedly, the stillness of the night made the water reflect the fireworks so perfectly that guests lost track of whether they were looking at the fireworks or the water. And you might think that all of this, which sounds like a pretty fantastic party, was a feather-in-his-cap situation for Fouquet. He had built an incredibly impressive estate fit for entertaining the guest of honor at his marvelous fete, the King of France. But three weeks after the party, Nicolas Fouquet was arrested by none other than the musketeer d'Artagnan on charges of embezzling money from France's treasury, with the implication that he had used those funds to build Vaux-le-Vicomte. This story is often told in sort of a shorthand, as though Louis XIV was jealous of Fouquet's dazzling 100-acre estate and then had him arrested because of that jealousy. According to this version of the story, the king was affronted that somebody of lesser rank than he was would dare to create a grander chateau than a royal palace. We should mention here that there were also rumors that Fouquet had even offered all of Volevicon to the king at the end of the night as a gift. But there is a whole lot of additional context to this story. Even though Fouquet had been incredibly loyal to the throne, even through an uprising of nobles against the crown that was known as the Fronde, which could be its own episode at some point, Louis XIV was turned against him through the scheming of other members of the court. 
At the point in time of the famed Volvicons Fête, Nicolas Fouquet was the superintendent of finance for the king and had been since Louis XIV was 15. And some accounts even suggest that Fouquet was something of a father figure to the monarch. The man who served as the primary antagonist to Fouquet was Jean-Baptiste Colbert. Over time, as Colbert had managed the responsibilities of Cardinal Jules Mazarin, he had become trusted by King Louis XIV. Colbert was the first person to accuse Fouquet of mismanagement of the treasury, and his efforts to get him out of office began in earnest in 1661. Letters written by the king indicate that even before the famed Volvicon Fête, Louis XIV had already decided Fouquet's fate, but decided to go to this lavish party and enjoy the meals and festivities and see just what had been built before he did anything about it. There is a famous quote by Voltaire, who was writing on the subject, that says, quote, On August 17th at 6 in the evening, Fouquet was king of France. At 2 in the morning, he was nobody. Fouquet is sometimes characterized as a man who really seemed to have no idea that the entire life that he had built for himself was about to come crashing down. But if you look a little closer, that doesn't really align with what we know about the construction of the site and the days leading up to that giant party. There were plenty of intrigues about who had visited Volvicon during construction and whether they were reporting back to the king about how suspiciously expensive it appeared. And then a letter sent to Fouquet by his friend the Marquis d'Auxelles a few days before his events stated, quote, The king would like to be rich, and he does not love those who are more so than he, because they undertake things he cannot do, and he has no doubt that the great wealth of these others has been stolen from him. Those were definitely some ominous words, and in just a moment we'll talk more about how Fouquet and his project, including the creations of the Notre, caused his downfall. But first we will have a quick word from one of the sponsors who keeps the show going. Before the break, we established that Fouquet undoubtedly knew that his situation was precarious before he had this ostentatious party. And there probably was a little bit of jealousy in the mix when it came to Louis XIV's ire and that the lavish display of Volivicomte did seal Fouquet's fate with the king. But to say that Louis XIV had Fouquet arrested for building a better house than the king had is kind of tabloidy, and it's not really representative of all the machinations in play. After a three-year trial, which is another thing that would be a good future episode if I can get my head around all of it, because there are a lot of strange legal things involved, uh, Fouquet was ultimately sentenced to life in prison. As for the actual guilt of Fouquet, that comes with a lot of questions on its own. And some people see him as a villain, while others portray him as a man who was part of a very convoluted and bizarrely organized government who was behaving in ways that were pretty normal for his station. There was money flowing back and forth between Fouquet's private funds and the crown. The accounts were a big mess overall. He mortgaged his wife's estate to give 1.2 million livres to the crown and then later borrowed a lot of money for the treasury, 30 million livres, but in his own name and with his own property for collateral. His own accounts and that of France were almost one and the same, and he was not innocent in this. He was making a lot of money by leveraging this fluidity and his position to make deals and acquire a greater personal fortune. 
Yeah, I don't know if anyone has ever fully been able to untangle like where money was going at any given point and how much was coming in from Fouquet versus possibly going out. I have read accounts that suggest that there were certainly other people that were embezzling, which makes it even more complicated and convoluted. Uh, But even during his lengthy trial, there were people in France who came to support him and believed that he had been less conniving and more just kind of really bad at his job. And there have been plenty of people through the centuries that contend that he was part of a system that had enabled far worse behavior from previous finance ministers. And to reiterate, Louis XIV had been very impressed with Volvicomte, and with good reason. He had heard of the splendor of the chateau and its grounds from his brother, the Duc d'Orléans, who had been at a smaller gathering there a month before the famous party. The Notre's contributions were really extraordinary. It's still considered by many to be his highest achievement, even greater than Versailles, which we'll get to in part two. The gardens of Vaux-le-Vicomte were, as we mentioned, made to look as though they stretched out to infinity if you stood at ground level and looked across the vista. But that was not the only optical illusion that Le Notre created. From some angles, particularly higher points that looked out onto garden spaces, he was also able to make large expanses of land appear to be small and intimate. If you looked out into the gardens from the chateau, it was an inviting and beckoning vista that did not look too far to walk, an illusion Le Notre created with the placement of four reflecting pool basins of progressively larger sizes as they sat farther and farther from the chateau. This use of space is called anamorphosis abscondita, which translates to hidden distortion. A paper written in 2015 and published in the Journal of Cultural Heritage used 3D modeling to analyze the layout of the Lenotre's garden design and to analyze it using the rules of linear perspective. This paper breaks down the process of how he was tricking the mind of the observer by offering up a wide variety of visual information at various distances while arranging all of these things around a strong central axis. But of course, he achieved all that without the use of any kind of 3D modeling. But while the math holds up when analyzing Lenotre's visual trickery, he undoubtedly learned how to fool the mind's visual perception in Simone Vouet's painting studio. Yeah, it's sort of mind-blowing to me that they, when you do the numbers, he was managing the space in, like, the optimal way to trick the human mind based on what we now know of, like, vision and uh, optics, which were not things he probably knew about. Uh, He was just a genius. (laughs) Um, This whole space was basically one big, long rectangle with that central access line. It was an open avenue that runs still from one end of the property to the other. And the chateau is situated on that line as a central element with a moat around it. One description that I read of the landscape design at Vaux-le-Vicomte described it as a vast outdoor room. And into this outdoor room, Le Notre placed all of the design elements that would become hallmarks of his work and of the formal French garden in this era. So there were pebbled walkways, there were low boxwood hedges, there were statuary, fountains, water basins that reflected the surroundings, a canal, and various grottos. Le Notre was the first garden designer to oversee all of those things. Prior to Volvicomte, if there was a, a similar chateau and grounds being assembled, different people or departments would handle like the horticultural needs versus the water features versus the statuary. So this is where it becomes very, very clear that calling him just a gardener doesn't really encompass what he was doing. 
one of the many innovations of the Volvicomte garden was its great water mirror, also called the Carré d'eau. If you face the front of the chateau, about 1,500 feet out from the building, you can see the entire front of the structure perfectly reflected in the water. This water mirror was the first of its kind, and even today, people visit Volvicomte, which is now open to the public, to capture this perspective photographically. Yeah, you can find modern photos of this all over the internet if you care to go looking, and they are really striking. That harmony between the landscape and garden design and the design of the chateau itself was all very, very intentional. When the site had been chosen, it was already a settlement. But to fulfill the desires of Fouquet, to create something entirely new where all of these components were harmonious, the existing church, cottages, and farm were all leveled to be replaced with the Grand Chateau and the property's own two designed hamlets, Jumeau and Maison Rouge. To execute the grand plans for the estate, Fouquet provided lots of labor. An estimated 18,000 men worked on the chateau and the grounds. He also provided plenty of cash. Budget seemed to not even be a thing with this. If something was needed, that money was available. The three creators were just given carte blanche to do whatever they wanted. That sounds really magical, right? As as an art project, um, to have no budget. Like, (laughs) I think most people that work in any creative field would just make heart eyes if they heard those words. All of those resources meant that Le Notre, who at this point was kind of in his middle age, uh, and he was able to do something that was unheard of on large estates. He designed and built a landscape that looked absolutely beautiful from every possible angle. It would have been entirely expected, for example, for the gardens to look beautiful for visitors approaching the chateau from the front or looking out at the vast property behind the chateau from the terrace, but to look a little disproportionate or lackluster from, say, the back of the property. But Le Notre, using his symmetrical layout but subtly different specifics in each area to avoid a true mirroring, created a space that was visually pleasing no matter where you stood and what direction you looked. And when you consider the visual trickery that we already talked about, that adds a whole other layer of complexity to this really amazing achievement. Louis XIV had been so wowed by this whole thing that he wanted the dream team of Le Notre, Le Vaux, and Lebrun to work on a project specifically for him. He truly marveled as his carriage approached the chateau. Some accounts suggest that Le Notre was traveling with the king as he made his way to the party and that he explained all the various landscape features as the king re- requested information about them. Yeah, uh, Louis XIV, as we'll talk about a little bit in the next episode, was really fascinated by gardening. <laughs> uh, and he undoubtedly would have had a lot of questions. He was also a little bit of an information junkie. So probably Le Notre was there explaining how he had done everything. Uh, After Fouquet's arrest, the king took the furnishings and even some of the more impressive foliage from Vaux-le-Vicomte, including the orange trees, and he moved them to his hunting lodge at Versailles. And that lodge, uh, we've talked about on the show before, had started as a very, very simple abode, and Louis XIII had rebuilt it in 1631 to be slightly more appropriate for royal housing. Uh, It was still considered by some to be a little lackluster, but Louis XIV had much bigger plans for Versailles. And it was, of course, Le Notre who he tasked with creating the gardens there. And that is the end of part one. It is it continually a marvel to me that the artists involved, as much as I think it is easy for um, modern folks to characterize 
the court of France and Louis XIV as this sort of very vengeful and backbiting thing. They did not punish any of the creators of that beautiful estate. <laughs> uh, they, in fact, stayed in great favor. And Le Notre in particular seems to have been a man that everyone loved. He just sounds like a great guy to hang out with. Everyone found him really chill, super delightful, great and good-natured, got along with everybody. Um, so I love it. And we're going to pick up with his his work at Versailles next time. I'm still working through the many, many wonderful holiday cards we have been sent by listeners. So I'm going to have a couple of those today for listener mail because there's a really great stack. Um, our first one is from our listener, Catherine. It is a card with the elf on the shelf on the front. And it has a little note that says snitches get stitches, which is a little <laughs> cheeky. It makes me laugh. Um, everybody has feelings but Elf on the shelf. Uh, she writes, Tracy and Holly, you have always been on my nice list. Wishing you both, your cats and family, the humans, a Merry Christmas, and all of the best stuff in the new year, Catherine. Uh, and she also included pictures of her adorable cats, Witten and Walter, who send their Christmas greetings. Witten is a very fluffy creature that has a tummy that begs for scritches. And Walter is a beautiful orange tabby who is probably super sweet because orange tabbies usually are. Um, this next card delighted me utterly. It is a repeat listener uh, mail that we have read his his mail before, and that is Germaine in his note. It is, first of all, a gorgeous uh, pop-up card with a beautiful Christmas tree in it. Um, and it is from our listener, Chip, and he writes, Happy Holidays from San Francisco. This is Chip again, and ladies, you have rocketed me to stardom. For side money, I drive for Lyft and Uber, and when I drive, I have Stuff You Missed in History class playing. My riders especially like the episodes that involve San Francisco, since that is where we live. In fact, your Great Quake and Fires episode had us riveted, and then you read the Halloween card I sent. I went nuts, and my riders burst into applause and cheers. They all subscribed to Stuff You Missed in History class before I dropped them off, and they called me San Francisco's history podcast celebrity. Learning about our home city from the two of you is always a blast. Please hurry back for another live show. I wish you and all you love have a very Merry Christmas and New Year of fun adventures. Chip, that is the sweetest story. I love it to pieces. So if there's someone in the car with you right now, I hope they appreciate that we love your cards and they're beautiful, and I'm glad that you're our history ambassador in San Francisco. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. You can also find us everywhere on social media as Missed in History. If you would like to subscribe to the podcast, you can do that on the iHeartRadio app, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is that you listen. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Listener.